Gimme, gimme, cause I'm obsessed. Gimme, gimme, cause I'm obsessed. Yeah, gimme, gimme, cause I'm obsessed. And I can't get it out of my head. Cause I won't use discretion when I'm talking about obsession. Cause this is what makes me me. And I'm glad that I called ya. I'm talking about nostalgia. And this is where I wanna be. Gimme, gimme, cause I'm obsessed. Gimme, gimme, cause I'm obsessed. Yeah, gimme, gimme, cause I'm obsessed. Welcome back to another episode of The Gimme. I am your host and resident horse girl, Kathleen DeMarle. Uh, I am very excited for this week's guest. Um, I think he booked me on one of my first shows that I ever did in Boston. Uh, he's absolutely fantastic. We have on the owner of the comedy studio, uh, Rick Jenkins. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, since you announced the, uh, the premise behind the podcast, I've just been enthused and I listen and uh, I think it's terrific. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm. if I hadn't done a podcast in quarantine, I don't know what I would be doing right now. Hmm, because you were talking about like, oh, I'm gonna do so much writing and, and that stuff, that's... Uh... And some of that's happening, but I mean, yeah. like, eh, you see a lot of comedians in Boston putting out weekly content. I see some mm -hmm. putting out like sketches and stuff like that. So this felt like a better, easier, realm for me to dive into <laughs> yeah i've been doing a lot of that of uh just putting myself out there yeah you know, like mike kaplan was like oh my god yes i'd love to have you on i'm like oh yeah I probably should have let you know <laughs> yeah and how have things been going for you without i mean what have you been doing without the studio having in-person shows well it's all over the place because you know one day it looks like we'll be opening soon the other day it looks like we won't um you know everything's all back and forth we're doing a, a whole bunch of content. We've got a podcast on Tuesdays gets dropped. Um, Wednesdays, we have uh, Angela Sawyer. So basically, we have eight shows a week yeah. on our website. Right. Uh, three of them are uh, uh, paid. Three of them are the ones we're hoping to sell enough tickets to, to stay afloat on. Sure. So yeah, so definitely try and check those out. And they're done in the same format that the uh, the studio's done. Of like, we'll have four or five comics doing short sets. Yeah. And because it's Zoom, we can get really cool people. Joe Wong called in from China. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we've got Josh Gondomi coming up and, uh, you know, Jenny Z from uh, Los Angeles. So it's, it's kind of nice we can get to all of our friends without making them come all the way into the club. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the one I did was with Emma Wilman. And I it was nice to, yeah. you know, see her on the show. And there have been a lot of other great guests that you guys have been able to get. I get it sounds bad to say that you've been able to get but because of like everybody's locked in their homes they mm -hmm. can call in yeah yeah well I mean I feel a little awkward saying hey you know now that you're famous will you come on my podcast or my uh my show or whatever but uh yeah so like Sam J said oh maybe I'll send in like a little a little hello or yeah like, you know, Gary Goldman was saying hey I'm not really comfortable doing zoom shows uh until I get more comfortable with an audience so it's not exactly a slam dunk. Yeah. And I've heard, I think it was, was it Mar Eugene maybe who said the same thing as Gary where like, yep. if you're so used to like using the muscle in front of people and then to have to learn something new so far into like your comedy career is probably very difficult. Yeah. Well, you're very good at this of knowing that uh, stand up is really should be a dialogue. Yeah. You know, so how the audience is reacting, what they're saying, just their 
their physical energy, all that stuff sort of goes into a give and take. Right. And to all of a sudden not have that. Yeah, I can see, I can see people having trouble with, okay, I did the joke. How, you know. Yeah. And it's the same thing as those uh, drive-in comedy shows. I've heard mm -hmm. comics do those and they say like, it's hard to know if a honk is uh, is a heckle or yeah. a good thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I've been thinking it's really, when we first started doing them, I saw it as, because I had watched a lot of your stuff, of uh, being even more intimate, seeing that you have to be a little bit more personal because the comedian is one foot from the camera. Right. And the camera is one foot away from the audience member. Yeah. So you really can't do big act outs and goofy characters and all that sort of stuff. You know, if you're doing stand up, you're pretty much, you know, facing that person. And then to have we, now that we've done a whole bunch and I'm getting a lot more comfortable with it, it's not television and it's not internet. It's its own thing. Yeah. So you sort of have to play that a little bit differently too. And with the Zoom anyways, boy, you can see everybody and their name. Yeah. When you, when you are on stage, generally the lights are in your eyes. Maybe you can see one or two people in front, but now you're looking at, you know, Bill is sitting there in his, you know, in his pajamas and uh, going off to get a piece of pizza and you go, Oh, what did I, you know, did, did I piss off Bill? What, well, how the hell did well, that happen? It, it goes the other way too. Cause with the comics, you could like go in the green room and write your notes mm -hmm. and like have a drink. And now you're sitting there. I had to, hide the video the other day because I was eating a calzone and I was like the audience does not need to see this yeah yeah you know what we've been doing is uh at least with zoom I know you can do it is uh have a breakout room oh yeah you know how like at work they'll say okay you go off and do your your breakout yeah and then we'll yeah you know, we'll come back or whatever we've been doing that at the beginning of the show having the yeah. comedians in a separate breakout room That's so all good. the comedians can talk to each other and have a calzone yeah so the reason I originally brought you on this podcast was because when I first started this podcast and I was thinking about obsessions, not just childhood, but in general, mm -hmm. I mean, your collection of Johnny Carson stuff points <laughs> to an obsession of some in, kind. An illness, yeah. yeah. An illness. <laughs> uh, so how did all of that start? Did you get into Carson because of the, because of the show or because of something else or... You know, it was, um, you know, obviously he was a big, a big feature for me growing up, but it was the grown up thing. You know, right. dad was up late watching it. And when you came down for a glass of water, you know, it was there. So, and Conan has said the same thing. I think for our generation, there's that little connection there of right. you know, being something sophisticated and, you know, cool and dark and, and hip. Uh, then, you know, cause most people, my generation, Letterman was the guy. Right. Because yeah. towards the end, Carson was, you know, it was Buddy Hackett and it was Sammy Davis Jr. It was all these old people that you would see Bob Hope walk on stage and get a standing ovation and you go, why? Yeah. What? Who, who the hell is he? He's not yeah. that funny. What, what's going on? So there was a real period where you just go, eh. Um, but I was always watching the stand-ups, you know, it's like Jeff Altman, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, those guys would go on. And uh, I, I remember coming to school the next day after seeing Seinfeld and going like, What's the deal with the thermostat? Dad would never let me touch the thermostat. He sat me down to tell me the birds and the bees. I said, forget that. What's with the thermostat? <laughs> um, and it was just one of those things. Everyone went, oh my God, that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> like observational humor was almost brand new. Yeah. And well, having that feel of, yeah, I'm just, you know, in control. I'm noticing everything nobody else is noticing. And 
you know, I, I got my stuff together. You, you yeah. don't think I noticed that, but I know exactly what's going on. So how old were you when you started? Because it sounds like you first started seeing it when you'd go down and your parents were watching it or whatever. How old were you when you started to watch it? Did you watch it regularly at one point? Or was that more when you got into comedy yourself? Yeah, not until my later teens. But yeah, I got into comedy pretty quick. I, I started in, uh, in fact, I have my, uh, the first dollar I ever made. Oh, wow. Stand -up comedy. It's uh, April 8th, 1981. Okay. And my first performance was March 18th, 81, because I didn't get paid for that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I made them give me the, we got $5. So I made them give it to me one at a time because I knew there was no way I would save $5. Oh, okay. So one, yeah, I could yeah. do that. So drinking age was 18. Right. And I, I had a date. We went to a comedy show and it just blew me away. And that was the same time that uh, Annie Hall had just come out. And yeah. I saw that as, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm neurotic and, you know, all worried about all this sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, that sort of planted the seeds and being at the high school lunch table, I still refer to that when I'm, I'm on stage. It's like, hey, this feels like I'm at someone else's high school lunch table. Yeah. You're standing there and saying, hey, everybody, let, you know, hey, if, I, if I'm cute, if I'm clever, will you listen to me? And that's where I got the, the Annie Hall stuff was sort of like, okay, it's based, that movie is basically boy meets girl, relationship breaks up. Right. There's not a whole lot happening in it. But by telling it funny, people will listen to it. Yeah. So that's when I started seeing comedy as almost a language. Sure. Like I could say anything I want to, as long as I translate it into funny. Right. And I mean, I think that's what a lot of other comedians, maybe not that exactly, but I think a lot of comedians would say that similarly. Yeah. Now, is that how you, because uh, I always imagine you being a lot more uh, social. Oh. I, I, I'm seeing you as one of the, the popular kids. Ah, I like to see myself as a social floater. <laughs> <laughs> I view myself as like, I, I try to be friendly to everybody, but you know, there are definitely people that I don't get along with, but I don't let them know that. I feel like you can never burn a bridge because you don't know who's going to do what, when. Yeah. If I if I can help somebody, I will. And and I try to be friends with some people, but I mean, yeah. Some of Were you are... always like that? Was high school was the horse girl years? Uh... Oh, same thing, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you know when it comes down to it, it might be there might be some other. I don't know. I might need to go to therapy to figure out what's deeper <laughs> down well, there. I but <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I do generally feel that I have a better connection with comedians because I feel like we do view things in a life in a particular way. Yeah. It seems like you, you see yourself sort of as a, uh, you know, that you're, um, you're part of everything and nothing. So like, yeah. Oh, I, I had a relationship with all the groups, but I didn't really fit in with any of the groups. Yeah. And, and I mean, I definitely have groups, but I, in comedy, but I wouldn't say that, uh, I, I don't have like a lot of, cause I go, I would go out to shows a lot and then my kind of solid group may not be going out to shows. So then I'm just talking to who's, who's ever there, who will yeah. ever listen to me blabber, you know? Has <laughs> that been true for uh, relationships as well? Do, oh. do you have a type? No, it's com comedian. I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't have a type, Rick. <laughs> really? There's, there's no like, oh, you tend to like. Tall oh, or outgoing uh, or? No, it, it, I think it would fall more to like, um, 
once again, like people that view the world similarly, like I'm like a little cynical and sarcastic and Mm -hmm. I cannot like, I, I, I don't know. I went on a date during the pandemic and the guy was talking about some science stuff. And then I said, you know, a sarcastic comment and he did not, it just went <laughs> right over his head. And I was Isn't like, well, that the worst. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You took that seriously. I, I don't think you're going to fix coronavirus, but all right. Yeah. You know, now what, uh, what, what do you do? I always end up doubling down when See, they don't, when they don't get the joke, I go, Oh yeah, that was uh yeah, that's a, that's a thing that they all know. I mean, uh, my dad does that. And so I try not to do that because I see that and I'm like, oh, please, like, no, they didn't get the joke. Like, don't, don't do yeah, it again. I just, I just feel like stuck. Like if I, if I explain the joke or, you know, ignore it, then I look like the, the idiot, you know? Sure. Now, but, um, you know, then I end up saying like, oh yeah, I've done that thing. And I haven't done that thing. Oh, I get into those conversations all the time where I'm like, sure, I know what you're talking about, just, and I don't, just to get out of. Yeah. And it's also yeah. tough with, especially with comedians, because they all want to talk about themselves. Yeah, they all want to talk about themselves, which is fine. Or I find that there are these niches in comedy where people have, you know, they're fans of either certain comics or certain bands or certain movies. Mm-hmm. And if I don't know any of the references, then I'm just like nodding along. Like, yeah, that album uh-huh. was great. Sure. <laughs> that was a turning point for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know uh, what we're talking about obsessions and stuff. I don't really know that I know anything other than comedy because even reading books and, you know, whatever, I sort of filter through that. Oh, this might be material someday. Yeah. Oh, this might be this might be something that comes along. So almost everything, even relationships, you know, I think back of what you know, being that, uh, you know, being that really clever uh, guy on, you know, comic on the Tonight Show, taking apart the relationship and yeah. explaining everything. And I always had the feeling that uh, a really good comedian could never have a good relationship because he'd always be thinking of what was true. And you've stopped a communication there. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I always just was told when I started comedy here, like, don't date another comedian. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Or like, or like you see, I I don't know. I'd see comedians get, get engaged and people be like, oh, that's it for them. Yeah. That's as far as they'll go. Well, as people, yeah. As people get uh, married and have lives and stuff. Yeah. You've, you've got different priorities. Yeah. And, you know, staying home and watching Zoom is probably better than, okay, you go to Nick's and I'll go over to the studio and maybe we'll meet up later. Yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. It's very different. It's kind of different now. When I started the studio, that was like a real, I wouldn't say rule because there was no consequences, but it was like, do not date comics. Yeah. Because it's not, you know, best case scenario, you both disappear. You know, what's probably going to happen is you break up and all the comics are going to have to take sides or... You get you one club and I get the other club and, yeah. you know, and it's really difficult because, you know, auditions, you know, you got an audition and I didn't and we're on the same show and, you know, all that yeah. sort of stuff makes it really, really difficult just to, you know, be in any kind of relationship with a comedian, even best friends. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes you have those comedian conversations where it's just, uh, all right, now everybody's going to go around and one-up each other. Mm-hmm. And it can be hard to have some of those, you know, to have some of those friendships sometimes, but. Yeah. Back back in the day, I had a couple, couple relationships, Shane Moss, a, f- a few people 
that were uh, dating, but keeping it a secret from me. Okay. <laughs> so all, all the other comedians knew, but they were so afraid that I would get upset and ban them or something because comedians were dating each other. <laughs> they kept it a secret until they were like, okay, we're, we're moving in together. We should let you know. Now, now we can let Rick know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, you're, maybe they viewed you as like their, uh, well, you were booking them. So they viewed, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think also what happens with comedy clubs is because you're bringing so much of your own personality to it, a lot of your hopes and your dreams and who you are is coming into that. You know, the comedy club becomes kind of something to project onto. Yeah. You know, I know there are a lot of people who, uh, who don't like me and a lot of people who like me and a lot of people who uh, I just don't know because if they have problems with their father that they were never good enough, yeah, that booker won't, you know, that booker's not talking to me. You know, he must, he must hate me. Or if the, you know, uh, you know, mom is overbearing, it's like, okay, how come he's always on my ass? I mean, just being as comics, we tend to project all that and you see it. Right. You know, if you walk into the green room and you see that there's six comics on the list and you're number five, you automatically start thinking, well, why am I fifth? Is that good that I'm towards the end or is it bad because I, you know, I'm not I, open. You know, what, where, where, where am I? I've always, I've gotten to the point now where whenever I'm anywhere on the lineup, I'm like, well, you know, I'm in the check drop spot. That's a good, that's good. <laughs> that means that they trust me or like, I'll be second and I'll be like, well, that means that I can follow the first act. And, but you yeah. know, it's just an inner monologue to try to not psych yourself out. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I usually look at it is there's no, well, either all spots are good because you're getting on the stage and you got the audience and it's yours to deal with it or all spots are bad because if the person in front of you sucks, how are you going to deal with that? And yeah. if the person before you is great, how are you going to follow that? Yeah. <laughs> There's no good spot. <laughs> I almost think instead of it being a spot thing, it's really who you're after. Like if I'm after Peter Martin, for example, mm -hmm. he always destroys, you know, he always destroys mm -hmm. and he has great energy. And so then there's like a shift in, maybe he's not like a high energy comedian, but like one to another. So then you may find yourself, you know, like digging out of a, a hole because he yeah. set the bar so high. Yeah. And there's also some really bad comedians out there. You know, there's That's also the fact that, you know, hey, somebody may be saying, uh, you know, anti-women stuff or racist stuff or sure. whatever. And then you've got to sort of follow that. Yeah. That's why I always look at my job as the host is to just give it that buffer so that you don't have to deal with it. Yeah. I can sort of, uh, all right, well, what was it that cool? <laughs> now, Rick, the way that you host the show, is that at all inspired by anything Carson related or any like comedians or yeah know? I think well yes when I started it was uh I have reviews of me saying he's acting too much like Woody Allen okay you know, that was yeah that was my big uh that and then about 84 I got to work uh, open for Leno okay and he is just one of those you know he's just always I don't want to say always on, but his mind is always trying to find another joke. There's always, he's always like that. And that, and he's very much, he takes control of the stage. Right. So I started thinking in those terms of, I want to be more like Jay in performance and more like Woody Allen in material and that until, um, yeah, until it got to be around the time I got my own club 
you know, or started working my own club and I was hosting every night. Right. So then I think I started looking back towards, you know, what, who were those touchstones? What were those role models I had growing up? And yeah. Carson was definitely one of them. Uh, Letterman, that feeling of someone who's there, it's not their job to get the big laughs, but they'll look better by making you look better. Okay. Yeah. And Jack Benny is a lot like that as well. It's like they always let the other person get their big laughs because if yeah. you're getting a big laugh on my show, I look great. Right. Yeah. So I, I always looked at that, uh, looked at Carson as sort of a thing. There was an interesting thing in, in the Times. They were talking about not liking, you know, always growing up, not really being a Carson guy because, you know, Letterman was, you know, meaner and edgier and, right. you know, and all that. And if you didn't like that, you could go to Leno and just get, you know, joke, joke, joke. And Carson was just sort of like that old guy who had on old people. And he had a big band, for God's sake. Was, you know, what, who's doing 40 pieces with brass? Yeah. But I looked at it as, and the article mentioned it, what was really amazing about it was the consistency and the longevity. It right. was, you knew you could always go there and you would get pretty much the same. You'd always get a good show. You might not get something like Letterman would have where all of a sudden, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Right. But you weren't going to get a, oh, I wasted my time with that. It was a real nice, oh, I know what to expect. This is before bed. Let me check out the monologue, maybe a guest or something, and I'll go to bed. And I think that's where my role modeling of that started. Yeah. Uh, okay. If you come to the comedy studio, it's going to be a good show. Yeah. You know, you might not, um, you know, it might be Eugene Merman. Uh, it, it might be Eugene Merman now. It might mm -hmm. be Eugene Merman when he started out. Right. So, but it's, it's always going to be something that because I'm there, it's going to be good enough. It's yeah. going to be, you know, you're going to have that safety net. Because uh, I get that all the time. People coming up to me saying, you know, I don't really like women on the show. Um, but that, that other guy was good. Or, you know what, that, that, that oh, I got one uh, just last week. It was about the Zoom show. But, you know, we didn't like those two comedians, not because they're gay, but, you know, just because they were talking about it. That's so weird. Oh, so, yeah. So it's like, well, you know, yeah, what, what can you do with that? And yeah. as a club owner and as a comedian, you don't want to say, well, you know what, you're, you're a bigoted asshole, so, you know, right. get out. It's kind of like, oh, well, you know what, we, we're presenting everything. Yeah. You know, and. You know, if you can count on, you know, if something happens or something goes nuts, you know, I'm coming back to say, right. okay, everything's all right. We'll yeah. get through this. And the times that I've had like friends or family go to shows at the studio, they're always like, oh, I remember Rick. Like you have a very like memorable, people know you because of how you, you dress and your cars and suits, obviously, mm -hmm. and your kind of like style of jokes and uh, every time somebody dies, I'm always like, oh, I got to think of, of, of a who died joke. <laughs> well, that's a, as a writing exercise, uh, I want you to try, try that because those that you hear who died, if you don't know, we just tell jokes, you know, when, when somebody passes away in the news or, you know, a novelty or something, I usually have a joke of, oh, this person died and now I have hundreds of them. Yep. But as a writing exercise, it's really interesting because we all know stuff connected to death. Right. You got the coffin, the cause of death, uh, you know, a hundred things, the Grim Reaper, you know, all that sort of stuff. So what you do is you take the person who died and just think, what do we know about them? When it first comes to mind, what, what do we know about that person? Right. You know, what, what do you imagine right away? And then all you have to do is find a connection. 
So when the woman who invented the slinky passed away, I imagine the slinky guard, what do I know? You know, what does everyone know about slinkies? Oh, they, they um, throw them down the stairs. Yeah, so. they're in a square box. They go downstairs. Okay, well, they put her in a coffin and threw her downstairs. Yeah, yeah. There, there you have a joke and you're just connected, just connecting two things and making people go, oh, didn't think of it that way. Yeah. I think that turducken joke I always find so comical because <laughs> I feel like it's a joke within a joke where you are explaining to people like the concept yeah. of a turducken. <laughs> <laughs> like it's well, a- and that's needed because a lot of times the audience doesn't know what a turducken is. Right. I, many, many times I'll hear people halfway through the show go, oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like almost inside baseball a little where then, then it hits them and they're like, oh, I got, now I get that. Yeah. Yeah. So where did the Carson suits come from? All of the, the, the Johnny Carson suits you have, how did you get into to that aspect of your collection? Yeah, well, that started because my style, like I said, my style started going more in that direction. And I think part of it is every comedian has sort of a, um, a, a motivation or an, an alternative um, motivation or something like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to be? Sure. And I think me, I just love stand-up comedy so much that I want to be a comedian. Right. So the type of jokes I do is what I think a stand-up comedian would do. The type of, you know, I would wear a suit, you know. If I were on the Tonight Show, I would wear a suit. Um, and then about, probably about a decade ago or so, um, I was on eBay and I saw little uh, cufflinks. Okay. And there were Johnny Carson cufflinks. It was like ten dollars. On the back, there was a little JC stamp. Okay. And I remembered that me growing up, the Johnny Carson clothing line was made in Buffalo. Right. Because I was trying to remember the Buffalo connection. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, for me growing up, if you got a job at the Johnny Carson clothing factory, you were set. Yeah. No, it was. It was one of the last apparel things made in America. It was a union job. And all that sort of thing. And so the suits were all over the place. And it was, you know, if you're doing okay, maybe for your graduation suit or something fairly nice, you would do that. Yeah. So made in America, made in my hometown. And it's sort of like, oh, it's, you know, the, the, the comical. Oh, I'm going to be that guy. Yeah. And so I got the cufflinks and then another set of cufflinks popped up and then it just I saw rolling. a suit and like oh wouldn't it be silly to wear like with, with the big wide lapels and yeah the big thing and uh yeah they're just uh because they're now you know what 40 50 years old it's like generally if your grandfather dies i'm buying his suit yeah because there must be <laughs> that wave of uh people that were buying them that are now passing yeah. away that's yeah, yeah. so bad a, yeah a lot of them are what are we going to do with grandpa's suits yeah and like i said they were they, it wasn't high end or anything i mean carson wouldn't wear them himself yeah but um you know it was sort of like all right that little bit step up it's sort of like a martha stewart or uh you know uh isaac marahi or you know one of those one of those uh, designers you see at target or something yeah like it? a celebrity branded yeah. kind of for the masses kind of yeah yeah so yeah Okay, yeah, it's you know, maybe a little step above, maybe not, but you know, I got Martha Stewart towels. You know, it, it makes you feel good. Yeah. So that's How- what the, that's what they became, and there's just so much different stuff. Yeah. Because again, we're getting to that generation where Carson was a you know no longer much of a thing, so 
people are getting rid of the stuff. Right. So I have, you know, uh, photos and uh, I have five different sets of pajamas. You have five sets of, of Johnny Carson, Johnny Carson pajamas. pajamas. Yes. I've got about a hundred ties. How many suits and, do you have? Uh, definitely over a hundred. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've got the, the sport jackets in that closet over there. Yep. I've got suits in that closet there. Okay. Over in this wardrobe closet, I have these uh, seasonal suits. So now oh, like getting, summer suits and stuff like that? Right. So now we're getting the summer suits into that wardrobe. Wow. And then underneath that wardrobe is the wardrobe of different sizes, the ones that are a little bit too big or a little bit too small. Got it. I think one of the first times I came to a comedy studio show was when, as a comedian, not as a patron, was when Sam Ike was comic in resident. Uh, and there was a day that you guys wore matching suits. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. I, w I thought it was like so funny and I didn't understand. I was like, okay, I didn't realize it was your thing at the time. Yeah. And then well, I was like- I had, yeah, I had an extra Johnny Carson suit in that yeah. style. So Sam, Sam tossed me the idea. I'm like, oh, uh, perfect. I've got, we can do those. And uh, yesterday, uh, last weekend, our, our Zoom shows get uh, really kind of crazy sometimes. Uh, Jenny, I think, Jenny, someone was talking about finding a mannequin. Okay. And, you know, like a, a doll that, you know, a, a ventriloquist dummy that seemed to be haunted or something that, you know, oh my God, this person, you know, this person thinks that the, it's real and they made him to dress up like him or something. And because we're doing shows from my apartment, I ran into the other room, got my brother's ventriloquist doll oh, wow. and an extra suit that I had uh, from what I was wearing. Okay. So I was able to, while the person was finishing their set, I was able to put the same suit on the, on the ventriloquist, ventriloquist dummy and say, hey, thank you very much. I don't think that guy was really strange at all. This is... This, this oh, is wow. <laughs> that's so... That's... Wow, that's funny. And it's a lot like, uh, you know, it's a lot like a, a yard sale or whatever. Yeah. You know, you're, you're getting it for $40, so the suit might not exactly fit. You might yeah. have to spend 20 bucks on this or, you know, it's happened a lot of times. Go, oh, that's not what I thought it was. Yeah, or I can imagine that a lot of this stuff may not have had a, a great previous life where, you yeah. know, people stained it or it's ripped yeah, or whatever. Well, some of the cool stuff, I mean, there's uh, stuff like, so this is, I don't, you, know, you, you can't hear it. But uh, Johnny Carson had coffee mugs for right. all the guests and everything on his office. And they were specially made with his picture on them. Yeah. And so it became like a thing that that's the only place you could get these. Okay. So now you can get some fakes for like, you know, $30 on eBay. And there's a, so it's become a whole in, individual uh, collector's thing yeah. of getting these coffee mugs. And because I'm on the Carson, uh, I listened to the Carson podcast, and now I know a couple of the other collectors, I was able to uh, take the three mugs I have yep. and send pictures to Johnny Carson's nephew, oh. who was a producer, okay. and he told me, oh, that, that's one we used for the show. That's not, that's not. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, it becomes, you know, and, or he had uh, these uh, pencils. He would have pencils made. They were specifically made with erasers on oh, both, both ends. ends? So that he could drum, he would just oh. drum on the desk while between guests or whatever. Yeah. You know, sort of like Letterman would throw the pencil be behind the glass. So yeah. there's all this sort of stuff that when I die, it's worth nothing. Yeah, but it's <laughs> worth only, something only to you. I know. Yeah. 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 But I, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's me, but it's, you know, 
I don't know if you find this when you're collecting something, it's generally you're collecting it because you love it. Yeah. You know, it would never occur to me to sell one of the one of the mugs or something, you know, unless I really had to. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a real collector, a real thing should be, oh, I like the Marie Kondo. This brings me joy. Yeah, that's one of my, it's comparatively to my other family members, I have very sparse belongings. And part of it mm -hmm. is that I don't like a lot of stuff and I just want to have, like, I don't need five typewriters. Like I have one mm -hmm. typewriter that brings me joy. It works. If it breaks, I'll buy another one. But like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm very specific about what I pick up. And so I, mm -hmm. I get that. And I say to myself, like, who is going to buy this collection of stamps <laughs> that I have that are all horse themed stamps? Like that is, <laughs> you know, like a collection within a collection. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and sometimes when you're feeling down, you're like, am I just out of my mind? What? <laughs> it's like, you know, I get the, the, I picked up a book for like $4 at a used bookstore and it turned out to have Merv Griffin's autograph in it. Oh, wow. And I'm like over the moon. I'm like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Um, anyone else would be like, why, why do you care? You know, it's, yeah. But, um, yeah. And what's the, we I mean, you have so much Johnny Carson stuff. Is there one specific item that's really like an odd thing, like an. Um, it would probably be the coffee mug. Yeah. Um, I feel the like the pencils are the pencils are weird because uh, you could only get the if you bought four ties from the Johnny Carson collection, you got a pencil. Oh. Okay. And I have about a dozen pencils. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do. There's lots of weird stuff out there, like the, his golf clubs were going for six thousand dollars. You know, there's a lot of stuff I don't pull the plug on. But well, my question is, say you win the, uh, say you get the golf clubs. I mean, nobody's going to golf with those. I can't imagine. <laughs> Good point. You know, yeah. like, so well, I guess. Yeah, maybe you do. Maybe somebody does, but yeah. I, I feel like there was a, uh, one time I came into the studio and you had found cart, like a, a Carson desk. Was it a... It wasn't his actual desk. I think it was like, it must have been. Like oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know what that was, was uh, Paul Reiser uh, produced a show on Showtime. Okay. That was supposed to be behind the scenes of the Tonight Show. That's right. Yeah. And so when that was canceled, the four desks that they made right. to look like that were. Went, um, went up. Yeah. yeah. Or were put up. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah, that was something I think they wanted, you know, $3,000 or $6,000. And That's just... even you think about like. Well, because I was trying to rationalize it, say, well, you know, if I got it for the club, <laughs> it wouldn't really be for me. Right. But again, you know, it's just something somebody made and, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I do find when I'm nervous, you know, before a big gig or something, um, I mean, I would do this when I was thinking of Woody Allen or Jay Leno or whatever, any sort of lack of a better word role model, you know, I will go, all right, you know, show's about to start. Let's get my shoulders back. Let's, let's go on as if I were, you know, as if I were Carson. You know, yeah. and have that self-assured, you know, uh, relaxed sort of get to it uh, thing to it. And I think that's what these compulsions really do. Yeah. Is they give you, they give you an out. It's like, you know, you, you can be something a little bit better than you are because you're not really sure how good you are. So you're going to be like this other thing that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in co I think in general, that's how a lot of people view comedy for themselves. You know, their persona on stage is very different than maybe 
you know, who they are in person. Like yeah. it took me forever to realize that Casey Crawford is not who he is on stage. <laughs> oh, he's such a sweetheart. Yeah. He called, uh, we got him coming up this week. He called us from Iowa. He and his wife were driving cross country and they stopped at a bar in Iowa and he used his phone to do his set. Oh, wow. For our Zoom show. So he's there. He's the only one in a mask in this redneck bar with, you know, people are all unmasked. He's like, what do, what's this guy from out of town doing? And he looks like Casey. So yeah, confusing. Uh, so one of the things I was wondering is I feel like historically with the Carson show, if you were a comedian on that show and he laughed and asked you to take a seat on the couch, that mm-hmm. was like, that was a life changing moment yeah. for stand up comedians, right? Yeah. Yeah. By the time uh, you get to see Martin and stuff, it wasn't as one shot, does it? Right. You know, you needed a couple or you needed to be a guest host. That was the other thing about Carson was he wasn't, uh, wasn't nervous. He would allow, you know, he would have guest hosts. So yeah. towards the end, every Monday was a guest host. Oh, so that's okay. how Letterman started doing it all the time. And yeah. then, then Jay Leno became the permanent guest host. Right. Because NBC didn't want to lose him. Yeah. You know, so they said, okay, we'll give you this. But, but yeah, the, so that was, a, that was a really, really big thing because that was really the only show in town. There right. really wasn't another place to showcase your, your stand-up to a large audience. But I wonder, is there, in the modern day of comedy, is there anything that equates to, you know, being invited to sit on the couch and have Johnny Carson laugh at your jokes? Um, you know, I think probably the closest would probably be, like, doing an audition for Montreal and getting Montreal. Sure. You know, that sort of, uh, that it puts you in in that space of, okay, now you've got a big credit and people are going to at least take a look at you. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty much where Montreal, or uh, you get Conan. Yeah. Now all of a sudden you're not one of the local comedians. Now you're, you yeah, know, now I mean, you're getting step up. Yeah, getting a, a late night credit, I think still is very important to a lot of people. It's difficult because there's so many. Conan yeah. seems to be the only one that really carries a lot of weight. Because Conan's the only one that has one producer assigned to just stand-up comedy. Okay, yeah. All the other shows, you know, the, a producer will book a band, you know, will book a guest, get questions for the guest, and book a stand-up. Right. Um, yeah, there's not as much, uh, most, most of the shows don't pay as much attention to stand-up because all the ratings show that, you know, people would, uh, people stay on the show if there's a bad band rather than a good stand-up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so to, to get that that nod yeah. is important. And it does feel to me like Conan more regularly has on stand-ups than some of the other shows. And, and yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe it's just that I, I've i seen more uh, clips from Conan sets. But Yeah, I think he, you know, he, remember, he was a comedy writer. So I yeah. think he really appreciates the performance and writing aspect of it. And you have people like, uh, I don't know if it's still the case, but Kimmel was trying to decide, okay, that's what, we're going to start making our name as the place that breaks comedians. Yeah. Like Carson, they were they were having a lot of comedians on. I don't know if they're still doing that, especially with COVID and all. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's a little bit of cycle through that uh, where word gets around, you know who's booking. Well, and there are so many uh, late night hosts now. I just feel like before it was one or two names and now it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. There, yeah. I mean, there's so it, many people that have late night shows. Yeah. Does a Comedy Central half hour equate to a spot on Colbert? Yeah. Is one better or worse? Right. Right. 
And yeah. I mean, I think some people would be excited to get either, but some people would probably say one carries more weight than another. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sam J did, uh, she did Montreal. Yep. And I don't know what, you know, one in one correspondence. She got this, so she got that or whatever, mm-hmm. but she got that and uh, she did Montreal. And then a year or two later, she got a job writing on SNL. Right. Which is a, uh, not a, a huge break unless you're a cast member. Sure. So a lot of, yeah, writers and cast members are the same thing. So it's, it's still, yeah, writer for SNL, but then put together her special. Yeah. And that was really well received. And now she's got her own weekly show on HBO. Yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, what, uh, Dennis Miller and John Oliver and Sam Jay. Yeah. So that's someone that, you know, just a, just a little while ago, we were all sitting at the bar saying like, hey, how come I'm not getting a late night TV show? Yeah, yeah. And that happened, I feel like, in the course of, uh, what, like three or four years? I mean, I think she just got SNL, what, like two years ago? And, yeah. 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 And that's really encouraging because it means we're all kind of in that pool. Right. You know, you start feeling like, well, she got it. You know, maybe, you know, maybe someone's going to take a look at me. Yeah. You know? I but do I find- also think that's a big difference with my career where it kind of fell apart was, like I said, I was trying to be a little bit like Carson. I was trying to be a little bit like somebody. And they've already got one. They already have a Carson. They already have a Colbert. They've already got those guys. Yeah. The people who really make it, who crack that next level, that that ceiling or the moat, across the moat, however you want to put it, are the people that there's nobody else like them. Which is hard. Yeah, I started out with Joe Rogan, Louis C.K., Janine Garofalo, whether you or not you like those people, you have to admit there's nobody else like them. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. nobody else like Joe Rogan. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, I, and I mean, that was the knock against him when he started. That he was too dirty. You know, now it's, uh, you know, he's expanded that into politics and, you know, and everything else. And yeah, he's, he's now. Maybe uh, he'll host the next debate. <laughs> there, there was talk about that. Yeah, wasn't there? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it seems to me that uh, I, I guess I, I I mean, I feel like you have your own unique perspective, but I guess I can see where you're coming from, where like there was already a host. There was already, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's always a question. You know, you're, nothing, is, nothing is created out of a vacuum. Right. Everything in life has to be compared to something else. Sure. You know, you only breathe as opposed to not breathing. You know, absolutely everything is, is like that. And yeah, so with comedy, it becomes how much of your influences are showing. Right. I mean, I know you've seen comedians where you're just sitting there thinking, oh, he's doing that guy. Oh, that I know that I know that cadence. Oh, she has a joke yes. like that. Yeah, I was going to say, and there are certain comics that hang out so much that they start to sound like each other. And then you're like, <laughs> wait, is he the authentic one or is he the authentic one? And then yeah. you find out that they're both doing somebody else who doesn't even live yeah. here anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's so true. I remember back in the day, shows were generally opener, middle, headliner. Right. And you would do a week at a time. So it'd be one show Thursday, maybe two Friday, two Saturday, and one Sunday. And you could see it by Sunday, pretty much every middle was doing the cadence of the headliner. Right. Just being with that person, you know, that, that dynamic personality, night after yeah. night, all of a sudden some of the pauses start slipping in. And yeah, it takes a long time before you're, you're you. And that's why I really like what you're doing with the, with the podcast. Cause you took a look and said, all right, what's unique about me? What's different about me? And let's start exploring that. 
Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think for me, unfortunately, the pandemic timed out to this point in my comedy career where I was like, what's my voice? And I was trying to, you know, finally kind of dive into that. I think it takes a long time for people to figure out, you know, their perspective in comedy or not sound like their favorite comedian or whatever. I guess I'm lucky that I like Jerry Seinfeld because I don't, thank God I can't write those kind of jokes. <laughs> yeah, um, Mike Kaplan was talking about it, um, that it's really difficult to give people advice in comedy because all you can say is, well, just do it. Yeah. And you say, well, when will I have my own voice? It's like, you'll do it. Yeah. You know, there's, I, I don't think I have a unique voice at all, but now all of a sudden everyone is telling me I do. You well, know? I mean. You just have to do it. It's just yeah. like growing up. You just keep doing you until one day you wake up and you say, hey, I'm grown up and I'm, I'm this person. Yeah. And I figured it out. Yeah. I'm not sure you ever really figure it out. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think so. I rewatched some of my tapes recently and I was like, oh, yeah? this is all horrible. And then I went and performed some of those jokes and I was like, oh, they're not that bad. You know, like, it's <laughs> like, I never am going to figure it out. Yeah. It's, a thing. It's, it's never as bad as you, uh, not as bad as you remember or as good as you hope. It was rough. Some of the early tapes I watched and I was like. How long ago? Oh, I think I watched my first studio tape from 2016 and I had to like turn it off. I was really? like. It wasn't that bad, but mm -hmm. it was like there was too much fat around before any of the, the punchline. Mm -hmm. So I was taking a long time to get to something and then I would rush through the laughs to get to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, you knew, you know, you knew you were going to do stand-up comedy. You knew you were supposed to get to the punchlines. I don't know. Why, why was there that fat there? I don't know. I think part of it is just that uh, in general in life, I'm a very, you know, I oftentimes get told I, I talk to fill the air. So I was probably mm. just doing that and had to figure out how to make it more concise. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing that you see comedians with a lot of ands and ums. Yeah, and not hitting their punchline because, you know, it's really awkward to say the funny word and then wait for people to laugh because yeah. they might not. But that's the definition of the job. Right. I say something and then the audience is supposed you to laugh. react, yeah. Yeah. Well, Rick, we are coming to the end here. We're wrapping up. Do you have any other, you know, any other fun uh, quips about anything you've experienced with Johnny Carson over the years? <laughs> Um, not specifically. I mean, there's lots of posters and stuff all over the club. Yeah. And uh, really, I think overall comedy is more the, uh, yeah. you know, the, the obsession, because if you go in the club, pretty much everything, like I said, everything I have in one way or another, you can sort of trace back to, you know, back, back to comedy or something. I just bought some, uh, some vinyl LPs. Oh, wow. And I've got, uh, I've got Donnie and Marie, I've got Barry Manilow. I've got everybody you would normally see on a variety show in 1980. Yeah. And your collection of books that you have at the club is like all com. I mean, there's so many comedy books that you have yeah. too. Yeah. 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 I wish I was, uh, I wish I was funnier and knew less. <laughs> all right. Well, um, Rick, it's been so nice to have you on the show. I'm assuming I so should, much, I, I'm assuming I should just tell all of our listeners to check out the comedy studio and their the comedy studio.com. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for doing the show and thanks everybody for listening. 
Um, tune in next week for another episode. Bye.